when uh, I was teaching in prison, it was my last day in class before I headed back for Dallas to be at the seminary, and there was a new fellow that was coming in to take up the uh, teaching position. He had just gotten out of teacher's college, and he wanted to be sure and let these fellows know who was in charge. So he got up in front of the class and gave this spiel and thought it probably shook them down to their boots. And uh, as the class was filing out that last time, one of the inmates came by me and he sort of whispered in my ear, we'll see. (laughs) I, I, I almost would have paid to see that confrontation because those guys were going to take him up on his challenge about who was in charge. Now, the, the prison guard that was stationed outside in the hall was named Mr. Look, an ex-Navy sergeant, big boy and tough. And he used to say to the guys, now, let me see, I thought it was the guys with the blue shirts who told the guys with the brown shirts what to do. Oh, look, I have a blue shirt, he says. But he knew it wasn't really the shirt that you wear that gives you authority in prison. If you haven't figured this out, let me tell you, the color of your shirt, and I mean by that inmate or guard, or the stripes on the shirt has nothing to do with your authority. And one of the things that quickly happens in any prison is the chain of command is laid out and often... Somebody wearing a brown shirt is telling somebody wearing a blue shirt what to do and where to go. That's just the way it is. The reason I say that all of that is because authority is absolutely essential to being able to do your job. When you think about our Lord Jesus and you think about the ministry that he is commencing in the Gospel of Mark in Mark chapter 1, You have to remember that from a human point of view, Jesus has absolutely no uh, benefits, as it were, in the realm of authority. You remember that he comes from Nazareth, and it was Nathaniel who said in John chapter 1, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? I take it that Nazareth was not the uh, status place, the Harvard of the day for a young uh, theologue to come from. He had no great position so far as his family was concerned. He had no credentials with the religious community in Jerusalem. Jesus was a zero in terms of all of the standard benchmarks for how someone would start a significant ministry that would impact not only all of Israel but all of the world. And yet, that's exactly what this text is about. It is about establishing the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ so that he will become one who speaks and others ought to listen. Well, what was it that produced that kind of authority? Our text tells us, and I chose not to break it up into smaller parts because I think The purpose of this text is to give us an overall impact with all of these things in combination to where we say to ourselves, this man has authority. 
And that's what the people said. When they heard him teach in the synagogue at Nazareth, they said, What is this? This is a new teaching with authority. That's the kind of teaching that people need to hear. So Jesus commences his ministry beginning at chapter 1 and verse 14. And notice that he waits until John the Baptist is actually uh, taken into custody before he begins that. But I want to spend just a moment talking about this gospel that Jesus commands men to hear and to heed. Uh, I think we read backwards and we say to ourselves, well, this is the gospel about the cross. This is the gospel uh, that has to do with our salvation and whatever. And, and ultimately it does. But in the Old Testament, often there was a near prophecy and a later one. The nearer prophecy was seen much more clearly than that prophecy that was off into the future. So when you think about this, and it's talking about repentance, acknowledging your sins, and looking forward and paving the way, as, as Isaiah 40 uh, says, and as John the Baptist is saying, preparing the way of the Lord, make his way smooth. Think about several texts. Deuteronomy chapter 30, our Lord, remember, our God has spelled out through Moses the consequences of unbelief, and in a short section, there, <laughs> because there wasn't much chance of it at the early days, in Deuteronomy 28, the blessings for belief and obedience, but the cursings for unbelief and disobedience. When you get to chapter 30, it's clear there that there's going to come a time when Israel, that Israel won't obey. There will be a time when they are going to be scattered amongst the nations. But when they repent and turn, God will bring them back. Then when you come to 1 Kings chapter 8, and you remember the prayer that Solomon has with respect to the temple, it's a prayer that has to do with people turning to God in prayer. And when you get down as far as verses 46 through 53, there it's saying, if your people sin, and if and when you scatter them out and you send them into captivity, if they repent and turn to you, that you will bring them back. So the repentance that I believe John expects and the people expect is the repentance that will once again open the gateway, so to speak, as Isaiah 40 is doing, to the kingdom which will be given to Israel. Now, they reject that kingdom, and you know that leads to the opening of the door of the gospel to the Gentiles. But don't read too much of the gospel as we see it into those early texts in the sense of that's what the Israelites were hearing. They weren't. Not even the disciples were hearing it, and they weren't hearing it as late as Acts chapter 1. They kept trying to get that kingdom in, but that's not the kingdom that was... Uh, that, that's, that's the kingdom they expected, not the kingdom we have come to look forward to. And it was a Galilean ministry. Now, I want you to run those forward if you can. Pardon, I, I got smart after this and went with a bigger, uh, wider pen. See how smart I was? <laughs> Finally. But if this is a map of, of Galilee. Go back for one second, Kevin, if you would, please. One of the things that fascinated me as I looked at, at this ministry, John the Baptist's ministry in the red, see down at the bottom, was basically at the Jordan 
and, and around the Dead Sea area and that coast that would be on the west uh, side of the Dead Sea, and that would be the Judean wilderness. So people tended to come from Jerusalem and Judea, and they came down to the Jordan River to hear uh, John the Baptist and to be baptized. When, and, and Jesus went there to be baptized as well. But when you come to Jesus' ministry, his ministry is really up north in Galilee, and uh, in that whole area, so you'll see up toward the, the top. We'll come uh, in a minute to uh, Capernaum in a better picture. But this is the area where our Lord Jesus focused. The question that's kind of always haunted me is, why did Jesus wait for the arrest of John the Baptist when their ministries were so separated geographically? I mean, it wasn't as though they were going to be bumping into each other. John the Baptist was down south and east, and Jesus was north and west. So why wait? It seems like our Lord Jesus was waiting for that time when God was indicating that it was the moment for him to come forth and proclaim the kingdom. I can't, I can't validate this, but you remember when David was anointed as king, and yet he would not lay a hand on Saul until God removed him? I just see that spirit with our Lord. The way in which the signal was given to our Lord was God removed John the Baptist. And then he sets about his ministry, even though they're geographically dispersed. Now, I think we should have a couple of pictures coming up here. This, wasn't that a beautiful picture? I wish I'd taken that. Uh, obviously an aerial picture, and you'll see at the, at the top of the picture there is Capernaum. Not much to look at. Go ahead and roll the next picture. This is one, if you're, if you've been on that boat, and I suspect a lot of you have, you know, the one that goes across the Sea of Galilee. And, and it'll come by and you'll see this scene. But again, you can see Capernaum is basically it's like a state park now. There's not much there. And go to that next shot. This is the synagogue, the, the remains of a synagogue that is there. I don't think anybody assumes that this is the synagogue to which Jesus came. But it may well be on that site that our Lord will, will come to that uh, synagogue and and proclaim the gospel as he preaches. Okay, let's look at the calling of the four disciples in verses 16 through 20. I love Ray Stedman, and I listened to his message on Mark chapter 1. And I think the title of it was, A Day in the Life of Jesus. <clears throat> I like everything about the sermon, but the title. I, I'm not quite sure when I, when I read Mark chapter 1, I'm not quite sure that I'm reading a day. Now, if you were to turn over to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, then I think you would be thinking more in terms of a particular day. So you have, uh, notice verse 29 of John chapter 1, the next day John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 35, again, the next day. John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked down upon Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And two of his disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. We know one of those disciples, right? Because this text tells us, Leonard and I were just talking about it a minute ago, Andrew. 
Andrew. So when Jesus is going to come and he's going to call Peter and Andrew and James and John, some people think the other disciple was one of those two. And, you know, if that's the case, uh, then what you find in our text is when our Lord comes and he sees Peter and Andrew and James and John, it won't be the first time they've ever seen them. In fact, John chapter 1 seems to indicate that when our Lord, uh, when these two men followed him and brought others, that then they accompanied Jesus for a short-term ministry, as it were. And it's not until Mark chapter 1 or Luke chapter 5 that you really see uh, them departing permanently. Luke 5 has some different variations and so, whether or not it's the same incident that we're looking at here in Mark 1, I'm not crystal clear. In that instance, remember, the crowds are there listening to Jesus. He gets into one of the boats, and he, and he has them press out so that he's got a kind of a platform or podium out there, and they're not pressing in on him. And then he says to them, cast your nets out. And they're saying, Lord, look, we're the fishermen. Trust us, we know when to fish, and this is not the time, and this is not the place. And you remember, they brought the fish in, and the boats nearly sank, and then Jesus says, follow me. And that was his way of saying to them, I'll take care of you, trust me. But in this text, we have a a really short account of our Lord's calling of them. He goes down by the sea, he sees Simon and Andrew, uh, the, his brother casting a net. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I never looked about, at Peter as a really humble guy and I'm thinking he's saying to himself, what's he going to teach me about fishing? <laughs> but somehow Peter leaves his job and, and goes and follows Jesus and then James uh, and John do likewise. They leave immediately and permanently. And this short account, I'm not saying it wasn't a longer event, but the very brevity of this account underscores, look what's happening. Look at the authority of Jesus. Now, you need to understand that that, that it's nearly a caste system in that part of the world. You don't branch out. uh, Peter didn't wake up one day and say, I think I'm going to become a plumber. You are what your father was. That's just the way it is. When you leave that job, my friends, there isn't anything else on the horizon. You don't get the paper out and look and see what's available uh, in some other place. That is your place in life. So when they leave their work, they leave everything, so to speak. And they not only leave the boat, as uh, James and John do, they leave their father. Now, I'm not sure that we can understand, given the fluidity and how we change jobs and whatever, we can ever get the impact of that. That's a huge decision that is made, and it surely underscores the reality of our Lord's authority. Uh, and these men recognize it. Now we come to the teaching of Jesus in the synagogue of Capernaum in verses 21 through 28. Jesus comes to the synagogue. It's on a Sabbath. That's one of the reasons I'm not quite clear you could say this is all one day. It seems to me enough time has passed. Now it's the Sabbath. You would fish, 
you wouldn't fish on the Sabbath. So, you know, it looks as though they were fishing, got called away. Then the Sabbath day comes, and and here they are now in the synagogues. And notice what it says in verse 22. The people were amazed because Jesus taught with authority and not as their scribes. Now, folks, I don't think that this is saying Jesus had a better homiletics teacher than they did. I don't think his hand gestures and all of that are what it's about. And I'm not even sure it's about his tone of voice, although I believe when you heard Jesus, you got the distinct impression he knew what he was talking about. Not denying that. In this text, I believe the authority issue is really underscored and forced upon us by this handling of the demons, uh, uh, this demon-possessed man. Because it's introduced there, he teaches with authority, but then you get the story of the demonized man, and then it ends with people saying in verse 27, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So here's Jesus in the synagogue, and all of a sudden this man begins to cry out. Now, I wanted to get a feel for what that was like. I've had some mild experience in this realm, so I thought, I'm just going to check. Crying out was not a little yelp. When you look, for instance, at Joshua chapter 6 and verse 5 in the Septuagint, this word is used of the Israelites who let out a great shout. Remember when they surrounded the city and then they let out the great shout? I don't think that's a wimpy little, yay team, kind of a shout. This is a big one. And then when you come to Judges chapter 7 and verse 20, where Gideon, remember, is with his 300 men, it's a mighty shout. Scares the willies out of these guys. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 5 is fascinating to me because that's the one where the Israelites decide to bring the ark into the battle, which they've been losing with the Philistines. They bring the ark in, and when the ark is brought before the Israelites, they let out this huge shout, and it says, it was so great that the ground shook, and the Philistines were scared to death, and they said, they're going to win, they're going to win, but let's die like, really, like brave men. And then the Israelites lost. But the point of that story is, that shout was a big one. And I believe the scream was a big one too. By the way, in Joel chapter 3 and verse 16, it's used when our Lord, and the translations almost consistently say, when our Lord roars. God speaks, it's a roar. Mark chapter 6 and verse 49, last instance, and it's, it's in Mark. Can you guess where it was? Jesus is walking on the water. He passes by his disciples and they think he's a... Man, you should have heard those guys like little girls. Whoo-wee! Are they letting it out? This is the word, okay? Now, place yourself in the synagogue where you have kind of a reverence and, you know, the formality and whatever, and all of a sudden this guy cuts loose with these just blood-curdling shrieks. Now, if you go over to Mark chapter 5 and you read about the demoniac or you read about the two of them in Matthew, those guys were so terrifying, you couldn't chain them. You could not keep them in chains. They'd snap them. 
like Samson would with his ropes. They would snap the change. Those guys lived in the cemeteries and whatever, and nobody messed with them. Nobody messed with those guys. I've seen even, uh, uh, not apart from the demonic world, when people are, are psychologically distressed, I've heard an ambulance driver say to me, if we cannot talk this individual into getting on that gurney, four of us won't get him there. Now, think about a guy who's demon-possessed in the synagogue. I'm telling you, folks, it gets everybody's attention. This is scary stuff. Now I come to my example from prison. We were in a maximum security prison in Texas in the chapel service, and in the middle of that service, this guy let out with the most inhuman, unbelievable shrieks and moaning I have ever heard come out of a guy. Now, there are all kinds of cons that go on in prison, but I got to tell you, I was looking at the inmates, and their eyes are popping. Everybody's saying, this is really scary. Now, the next day, the guy professed faith in the Lord Jesus. But I got to tell you, there wasn't any question in my mind where that scream was coming from, and it is terrifying. So, Jesus has been teaching. No doubt, we know it was new. Now, we didn't get the Sermon on the Mount here, but remember, Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say. So how does one set aside all of the Jewish teaching and come up with something new without authority? You don't. So when this shrieking begins and Jesus says to the spirit, be quiet and get out. And the spirit obeys. He's got everybody's attention. This is one who speaks with authority. And I believe it's the demon exorcism that really underscored that for the Lord Jesus there. So their conclusion, new teaching, absolutely right. Mark does not really uh, spell that out as Matthew does, but it is with authority. Now, that leads to them going uh, from the synagogue to the house of Simon and Andrew. I call this, uh, look who brought guests for dinner. There have been a few occasions where I've invited somebody home for lunch, and the only person I forgot to tell about it was Jeanette. That's not a good idea. Come on, guys. You've been there, right? We've all been there. It's not a good idea. This is Peter and Andrew's house. So I'm, I'm getting the impression, and this again I've seen in the, in the, in uh, that part of the world, where, where, uh, families live together in a clannish kind of way, and often the, 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 maybe mom and pop are in first floor, and, and then the oldest son's in the next floor, and you just keep going up. Our house would have been a skyscraper, but we could have done it. But here they are, and when, uh, when they bring, uh, Jesus and, and these other guys along for lunch, unannounced, unexpected, I take it, it probably was not the most popular thing to do. And on top of that, mother-in-law is not feeling well at all. In, in fact, it talks about her having a fever, and it's kind of the same word for fire. <laughs> I'll bet she was burned up when she figured out what was going on. And I have to tell you, I don't think I'd have wanted to be there to eat that lunch myself. 
But cap it with this. It isn't just unannounced guests, folks. I've always wondered, why make this mother-in-law thing out of it? Yeah, you know all the mother-in-law jokes, right? We all do. So why make the mother-in-law the, the, the big figure? And by the way, the first one in Mark to be healed. Try this on for size. Peter is your son-in-law. He married your daughter. He just quit his job to follow this guy. Now, what do you think mother-in-law would think about that? Not good. Not good. And then bring a crowd for lunch while she's sick. Oh, that's terrific. This is going to be a good day at Peter's house, right? No way. So, when Jesus hears about Peter's mother-in-law, he goes in and tenderly takes her by the hand and raises her up. And I think we've all focused on the fact that she is immediately healed. She doesn't have to lay there and rest up for a day or a few hours, take a couple aspirin. She gets up and she serves them. See, hospitality, remember, in those homes is a, sim is a symbol and a signal, right? I think, now I, I, I'm reading between the lines, so forgive me. I think this was God's way, not only of demonstrating the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, but of paving the way in this family setting, paving the way with Peter's mother-in-law for her to say, you know what, this guy's okay. And if my son-in-law chooses to follow him, okay. And stick around for lunch while you're at it. That's the way I read it. Now, it obviously is a gate kind of thing. It opens the gateway to bring about all kinds of, of things that are described in verses 32 and 34 through 34. That's in the, uh, it seems like that's the lunch. Already word has gotten out, it's filtered all over town. Here is one who has the authority to heal. They probably mixed that with the story of the synagogue and the demons. And all around town, people are saying, now here's a guy we want to hear, and here's a guy we need to have uncles, whatever, see, or whichever person in their family is, is, is demon-possessed or, or in, in uh, some physical malady. They bring them. So by evening time, they look at the door. <laughs> See Peter's mother-in-law say, oh, good night. How many people are here for dinner? You know, good gravy. The whole doorway, they're just all they are. Anyway, so here comes Jesus, and he heals them of many various maladies, right? So it's not just that Jesus specializes in one leg shorter than another or whatever the, the typical thing is. He takes them all on. It's obvious Jesus' power is unlimited. And he cast out demons. And they, notice, recognize Jesus for who he is. Isn't that interesting? Demons had it figured out. He was the Holy One of God. But verse 35 comes along. Jesus, early in the morning, has gone off by himself to pray. The disciples get up. They think this is really going to be a good day. In other words, they're on a roll, right? They're on a roll. The crowds are coming. They can just see, you know, uh, big things ahead. 
And Jesus isn't there. Crowds are looking for him too, according to the other Gospels. So here's Jesus out praying and the disciples are saying to him, I can imagine Peter especially, come on, Jesus, get with it. We got this thing going here. Come on, we got to get back. The crowds are waiting for you. And Jesus says to him, now my priority is preaching the gospel. Not healing, that's important. My priority is preaching the gospel. And I would say, too, it's not just preaching the gospel, it's preaching the gospel to those who haven't heard yet. See, what he's going to do is he's going to go to all these other places within the confines of Israel at this moment, but he's not going to leave a place that's not heard. That's why this, the disciples are sent out two by two. They're sent out as kind of John the Baptist to announce to the people that the Lord Jesus may be coming uh, to their town and bringing the gospel with it. So Jesus has established his priorities. His ego hasn't gotten a hold of him, neither has his press agent. And so we come to the story in uh, verses 40 through 45 of the disobedient leper. I have to tell you now, I, I am venturing out into uncharted territory in terms of the commentaries. I don't know anybody who does what I'm doing with this text, and that probably says volumes. And you're shocked, of course, but but I, I'm just amazed as I look at this because Jesus strictly spoke to this man. Do not tell anybody about this, right? And 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 then he goes off, and we all roll our eyes. And think, oh, isn't it wonderful? He told everybody, wonderful. He disobeys, and then Jesus has to go to the boonies because. He can't go into town anymore. I think we've got to look at this story a little differently. But let's start it out right. Here's the man, and I love the way John read it. The leper comes to Jesus. There is no question about his authority. He does not say, if you are able, please heal me. That always been established. It's clear that Jesus has authority to heal. The question is... Is authority mixed with mercy? Now think about that for a minute, folks. This is a huge issue. Think about a God who is absolutely in charge and absolutely merciless. That is the most frightening God I can imagine. But now the issue is not his ability. The issue is, is this one who has absolute authority, one who is filled with compassion, if you put those two together, my friend, you've got a winner. And that sets the stage. Jesus is the one who has absolute authority, and he is the one who exercises that authority with the greatest of mercy and compassion. So, the Lord Jesus said, I am willing. He healed the man, and then he gives him the stern warning in verses uh, 43 and 44. Let me read them to you again. He sternly warned him and immediately sent him away. In other words, he isn't even going to leave the guy around so that people see what happens. Out of here. And he said to him, See to it that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded, Leviticus chapter 14, verse 2 and following, for a testimony to them. Speak to them. 
Do not speak to anyone else. Could anything be more clear than those instructions? Is it not clear to you now this man disobeyed Jesus? He flat out disobeyed. Now, I could, I could conjecture as to a thousand reasons why this man would like to do it. If you had been a leper for years and years and everybody went by you and didn't even see you, and now you had a platform where you were the guy that everybody's coming to and wants to hear from, man, you could talk yourself silly. There are all kinds of reasons, but they're all bad. Because Jesus said, keep quiet. And so as a result, everybody is now thronging upon Jesus to the point where he has to go off to the wilderness. I know it says unpopulated areas. I still like the word wilderness better. In fact, I'm inclined to think he went to the wilderness where John had been. But the interesting thing about this is, and they were coming to him from everywhere. Where were they coming to John from? Jerusalem, Judea, by and large. What you see then is in one sense, Jesus has now replaced John. He's back where John was, but he's a Jesus who has the kind of authority. John never did a miracle, never did a sign. Jesus does them. John had people coming from all of Judea. Jesus has got people coming from everywhere. It seems to me Mark's leaving us, uh, with us, us with a decided impression. Jesus is greater than John. Is he not? Isn't that what John the Baptist said? There is one who has far greater authority than me, far greater than me. I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes. And Mark says to us, voila, here he is, the Lord Jesus. Oh, let me put that uh, graphic up next. I can, uh, Kevin. I think it's there. Uh, this is not a Bible works. This is the word authority. One of the cute little things it has is this ability to to uh, take a word and then to compare in terms of the, the the frequency that it's found. Notice in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. See how those go way out there. Authority is a big thing in the Gospels. And <laughs> what I really like to note is, do you notice the last one, Revelation? That ought to be a real eye-opener. And for anybody who is not a believer in Jesus Christ, that ought to be something to keep you awake nights. The one who's coming, the one who's described in the book of Revelation, is the one who has all authority. And those things are the extension and the outworking of his authority. All right, let me talk about this then for a minute. I reshuffled all my cards, I must confess. I, there are all kinds of applications, and I could have done all kinds of things, but the point of this text is authority. I'm absolutely convinced. The point of this text is the authority of Jesus Christ, because there is nothing, if he is not one who has absolute authority, it doesn't matter what he says, and it doesn't matter what he does. This text is given to us at the very outset of Mark, because Authority is the basis for the rest of the gospel. If he is not the one who has authority, let's just close our Bibles and go home. And you remember, it's the question that's coming from the opposition. By what authority do you do these things? Well, what do you know? Here it is. It's the authority of the divine announcer picking up from Isaiah chapter 40. 
It's the authority of God the Father saying from heaven, this is my beloved Son. And in the transfiguration account, in Mark, when Peter's probably blubbering away, he says, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. Now I got to tell you, that's authority and we'd better listen. And this text is just hitting us one way after the other with Jesus is a man who has authority. And we had better listen to what he says. Okay. So, uh, that's, that's the undergirding truth, I think, and reality which gives the gospel impetus. Now let's talk about the... Uh, uh, the authority of our proclamation. Jesus made it clear that preaching was his priority, right? And he had authority to do it. When he was departing from his disciples and giving the Great Commission, the first thing he says is, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. You have authority. Therefore, Preach the same, in effect, the same gospel. This message is the message we are to proclaim as a priority, but we do it with authority. Now, what kind of authority? Well, we do it with the authority of God's word, right? In some instances, we do it with the authority that comes, like we see in the book of Acts, with miraculous underscorings, where God is bearing witness to his word by supernatural events. I believe that can and does happen. I don't believe it must happen today, but it can, and in some instances it does. But the other basis of the authority is the inner working of the Spirit of God. In John chapter 16, verses 7 through 11, the Lord Jesus says to his disciples, I'm going to leave you. It's better that the Holy Spirit is with you. He will convince of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. Folks, that's the message of the Bible. And if that's our message, then that's the authority. And it's God working within unbelievers saying to them, you better listen to what is being uh, said. That leads me to the nature of gospel preaching. And in particular, in this text, why does Jesus command silence? Here are the demons who are saying what is true. Are they not? You are the Holy One of God. You'd have thought, you know, that the, the Lord would have been saying, you know, louder boys, louder, let's get this on TV. He silences them. Why? He silences this leper. Why? Oh, by the way, a caveat. He doesn't always silence everyone. Story of the uh, demoniac. Remember the demoniac when, when our Lord uh, cast the demons out of him and the demoniac pled with Jesus that he could go with him? Jesus said to that demoniac, No, you go back and you tell your friends and family what I've done. Now, I think there's a reason. A, that wasn't Gentile territory he was in. And B, that wasn't where Jesus focused his ministry. Now, here's, here's going to be the, the, the part for you to chew on and think about for a while. As I've thought about the way in which we proclaim the gospel, 
Has it ever occurred to you that there is a time with all the emphasis on the Great Commission and our need to witness and share Christ, has it ever really seriously been entertained with you that just as I have been commanded to proclaim the gospel, there is also a command by inference here that I don't. That there's a command that sometimes I keep my mouth shut, like the leper. The question is why? The question is why, and it has everything to do with authority. The reason why Jesus did not want the demons to announce him, the reason why, oh, oh, I forgot a text, didn't I? Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16 is the great confession. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 16. Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Then he also says to him, You'll be the rock, and so on. I give you the keys to the, to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you shall bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you shall loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. There it is again. Why is that? I think it goes back to verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. All right, try this on for size. An elder friend of mine, years ago, was uh, sharing a paper that a, a trial attorney had written on uh, how to go about convincing an, uh, a jury panel that, that, uh, of their verdict they wanted. And he, and he said this, Do not insult the jury by telling them the conclusion they have to reach and then laying it on them like they're going to be stupid if they don't do it. He said, Lay the evidence out before them and let them reach the conclusion. And when they do, they'll hold to it more strongly than if you had forced a conclusion on them. Even if you're right. I think that's what's true of the gospel. Now, folks, we don't sell the gospel like we sell, like a used car salesman sells an old clunker. You want to get them in that that thing, you want their signature on the dotted line as fast as you can, and you do not want them to think about their choice. Right? And the reason is because the product stinks. You've got to hurry those decisions. I believe that when G... It, remember now, we're, we're looking at a three-year program here. A three-year program. We're not looking at the kingdom, you know, is going to be the next day. It isn't. It's a program in which he wants people, just like Peter. It took Peter a long time to reach the point of saying, you know what? You are the Christ. You are him. <laughs> but see, nobody said to him, Peter, you dull fellow, how long does it take you to see the truth? Now, say with me, Jesus is the Messiah. Sign this card, and now you're in. It doesn't happen. When in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is talking about the, the uh, Ephesians, he said, you did not learn Christ in this way. 
I'm not saying there are no times when you meet somebody on your way and you share the gospel and they say, I'm ready. Folks, get the commitment. Go ahead. You can do it. (laughs) Don't feel guilty. But our problem is, I think we have so little confidence in the authority of our Lord and his word and his spirit that we want to hurry, we want to do forceps birth. Get in there and pull that baby out. Squawking and screaming, but pull them out. I think the authority of Jesus is so great that you give people what they need to hear at the moment and you wait to give them the next installment until they're ready. I really believe that in that sense that some of our evangelistic fervor and methodology is really flawed. Because we keep trying to force things. And the reality is, I believe we do so because we're not sure if it isn't us and it isn't then that it'll happen. But our Lord Jesus has great authority. And I believe that here at this stage, this early stage of of his declaring himself to be Messiah, he wants people to weigh the evidence He wants people to walk away in the Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't hand out decision cards. They go away thinking about what Jesus said. And when they reach their conclusion, folks, they're going to hang on to it because it's God who convinced them, not men. So I say to you, give some thought to the command for silence, even in the context of the Great Commission. There may be times when we say too much too soon. Now let me stop right there. For most of us, that is hypothetical and unreal. Most of us do not have to be told to shut up. We really do need to speak out. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Don't take what I'm saying as an excuse that mums the word in evangelism. I'm simply saying, when you are convinced of the authority of our Lord Jesus and the authority he has given you and the authority of the Spirit and his word, then you can trust him to open people's hearts and minds. And he will do it. I think that really changes our methods. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we don't peddle the gospel. We could say today, we don't sell the gospel like used car salesmen, sell clunkers. We proclaim Christ. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we are ambassadors, friends. There is a world of difference between a used car salesman and an ambassador. An ambassador represents a king and a kingdom, and he is expected to behave like an ambassador and to represent the one who is king with honor. That's the way we ought to go about the proclamation of the gospel. One last comment. I know I've gotten wound up here. One last comment. The the issue of our day, in in my understanding, the issue of our day in the church is the authority of Jesus Christ and his word. In the church, outside the church, true, too. We believe in the inspiration of scripture, or some do, and the uh, inerrancy of Scripture. But the real question is, does this Word of God relate to me today in a powerful and 
in a way that I can't set it aside and say, well, that was then. That was then. That's not now. I like to think of Jesus this way. Don't go there, friends. The authority of Jesus Christ is absolutely critical today. And I think it's where Satan strikes and his emissaries always come with authority. Look at Satan in the garden. Is that not an authoritative word? Thou shalt surely not die. Heretics are authoritative, but they're wrong. And I say to you, if there's anyone in my hearing, the worst thing in the world that can happen is for you to follow the wrong authority. The only authority worth following is the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That's the one we should follow. And I pray that you do. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for our Lord Jesus and for his great authority, not just then, but now. May we act like an ambassador. May we proclaim the king and his coming kingdom in a way that brings honor and glory to him. In Jesus' name, amen.